evening Bible study and so we're studying the feasts of Israel and tonight we're going to work really hard to get through a quick introduction and then we're going to do the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Okay, so we're going to work really hard to, to do that. So let me have a word of prayer and uh, we'll get going. Lord, we give you thanks for this time that we've had <clears throat> that we have together. We pray that as we study your word that um, as we have it in our minds and our hearts that we would allow it to change us and so we're so thankful to have our bibles and be able to look up these things to see what you have said not what we want people to tell us but what you have said in your word help us to learn from ancient israel uh, in their feasts and how that might uh, come over to us today and we pray this in christ's name amen so much of the life of ancient Israel revolved around certain feasts, festivals, and fasts. Uh, some, but not all of these uh, festivals are related to actual historical things that happened in the biblical account. Uh, however, some other feasts and festivals that the Jews celebrate and celebrated, they happened in history. They're based on historic events, but they're not events found in the Bible. And so I'm calling our study this the. I don't know why, but I've got you on the Bible team, but I don't hear you on this. I don't know either. So maybe what happened last time happened this time. Remember how you fixed it? <laughs> I am going to keep going. Let me give, I'm going to give Jim his uh, hand up. Um, so I'm calling these the biblical feasts and festivals. That's what we're going to look at, the biblical ones, to distinguish them from national feasts and festivals, because they would have feasts for like the death of Joshua and things like that. Um, so we're not going to consider any of those. We're just going to consider the biblical ones. And uh, even in the biblical ones, we're only going to consider the seven uh, main feasts and festivals in this study. And so those seven should be there in your handout. And so they're Passover, Feast of Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, Pentecost, or what's called Weeks, Trumpets, Day of Atonement, and Tabernacles, or Booths. So these are the feasts that we're going to look at in this study. Now, I think I put in bold print there in that list of feasts, the, those in bold print are the most important of the feast. So there's, there's three great feasts of, uh, in Israel. And those feasts are Pentecost, or Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And on those feast days, every male who could make it to Jerusalem is supposed to go to Jerusalem to do the, the offerings associated with those feasts. Now, these feasts, all, all seven of these feasts, have um, 
I guess I could say three kinds of significance. They have an immediate significance for what's happening there at that time when the feast is established. That's established for a reason. Um, they also have a ceremonial or commemorative significance. And finally, they have a prophetic significance. So all of these feasts either as a whole or elements of them point to the future. So uh, that's what I want us to consider here. I want to establish the fact that these feasts and festivals are all going to in some way point to something in the future. So let's turn to Colossians chapter two real quick to start with. So we're going to be doing a little bit of flipping in our Bibles here. But Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. And I, I give you those references there in, in your notes. So Colossians 2, chapter, or chapter 2, verse 16 says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So you'll notice right away that this passage speaks of festivals, feasts, and that these things are a shadow of things to come. Now, I take this as meaning that these feasts of Israel in the Old Testament and come over into the New Testament are vague images of something in the future. Uh, you see in uh, verse 17, the word shadow, the word shadow there, uh, skia is the Greek word. So it's a, it's a shadow. It's, you know, it's literally talking about when there's an object that blocks light, what does it do? It casts a shadow on something. Now, when you think about a shadow, Think about what you can see in that shadow and what you can't see. So when, when a shadow is cast, and uh, I had a shadow up here earlier in the day, but it's, it's going away a little bit. When, but when a shadow is cast, what can you see? You, yeah, you see the basic outline of the object that is casting the shadow, right? Um, think about what you can't see with a shadow. So what's that? Details. You can't see the details. So if I'm casting a shadow, you, know, you don't see what's this pattern on my shirt. You don't see a pen. You don't see glasses. You just see the outline of a person. Even if I would hold my hand up and spread my fingers out a little bit, it's very likely that the shadow would not pick up the detail of my fingers being spread out. So here, when it's talking about a shadow, we have to remember that a shadow does not have all the details. It's just giving a uh, vague kind of image. And it says here of things to come. In other words, these shadowy things that are being referred to in verse 16 are all pointing to the, to the object that's casting the shadow that is out into the future. 
And in this particular case, it says that the object is the substance is of Christ. So the King James says that it is the body of Christ, which is, a, is an okay translation of the Greek there, but it can bring confusion. Some people might think it's talking about the church as the body of Christ, but that's not what it's talking about there because the contrast is between what is the shadow and what is the actual thing casting the shadow. So that contrast is going on there. So it's not talking about the body of Christ in the church, as the church is talking about Christ, these, these shadowy things are telling us something about Christ, about his work, about his person. So we see that in Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17. Now, um, we need to be careful here because in these verses, it doesn't say everything and the Old Testament is pointing forward and telling us something about Christ. You know, some people believe that. Some people believe you can look at every place in the Old Testament that's gonna tell you something about Christ. It, it is, uh, we might call them hypertypers. So everything in the Old Testament is a type of Christ. But that's not what's happening here because you notice in verse 16, it mentions specific things. Food, drink, festivals, new moon, Sabbath. All of those things are connected to the Mosaic law. Mosaic law, food regulations. They even had regulations for certain drink, right? So the priests weren't allowed to drink uh, wine. They could, you know, they weren't allowed to do that when they were on duty. Um, you have festivals, and that's what we're looking at, but new moons. That's a big part of uh, the Jewish calendar year. And uh, you had, of course, every, every week you would have a Sabbath. So these things are the shadow. These are the things that are, that are the shadow. So uh, we just want to you know, have some caution that we don't turn everything into a shadow that points to Christ. Now, those pa passages, we won't get into it, but those passages in Hebrews... On Hebrews chapter 9, there's two uh, passages there. And then in Hebrews chapter 10, um, verse 1, this all kind of goes together. But in, in these verses, there are words like symbolic. Uh, there is the word copies. Actually, there's two different words for copies that are used. And, and it also has the word shadow. And that's all telling us that there is something in the past that is prefiguring, foreshadowing, um, pointing ahead to Christ. That all these things in the past are pointing ahead to Christ. So that's what those passages uh, are talking about. And if you got a question about those at the end, we can come back and talk uh, a little bit more about those in detail. Now, that's the introduction. And uh, as part of the introduction, I also gave you a chart of the Jewish calendar. So do you see that chart? Gave you a chart of the uh, Jewish calendar in your handout there. And so I, I've taken this from the New Unger's Bible Dictionary and I, I didn't take it as it is, I modified it. So if there's any mistakes, you can't blame him, you'll have to blame me. 
But I just, we're not going to go through this chart. I just want to kind of mention how it's laid out here, and then you can use it for reference as we go through this study. So as you're looking at that chart, as you look at the front side of it, you'll notice there on the left-hand column, there's numbers. Those numbers are the numbers of the month of the year, first month, so on. So there's 12 of them. Uh, in the second column, you'll see the Hebrew name for uh, the month. And just look at um, month one there. We'll use that as an example. But it says Abib or Aviv or Nisan. Okay. So there's some Hebrew months that have two names. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later, so don't get worked up about that. But there's the Hebrew name, and then there's the English name. And you'll notice in the English name column, it's always two months of our year that's mentioned. And that's simply because in the Hebrew calendar, the month begins in the middle of our month. So the month of Abib starts in the middle of March and goes to the middle of April. Okay, and, and all their months are going to be 30-day months, so all of them. So then the next column that you have there is the important days in that month. And, and um, these are not all the important days in those months, but these are the ones that have a biblical reference. I put in bold the ones that we need to be concerned about in our study uh, on this topic of the Feast of Israel. And then you get the seasons summer, winter, and this type of thing. Then the weather, what kind of weather is happening there. That's important because you'll see references to these weather events in the Bible, the former rains, latter rains, and things like that. And then what's happened agriculturally. Because remember, in ancient Israel, it's an agrarian culture. You know, they grow things. You know, they're raising sheep. And so all that is there in, in that calendar. And so you can uh, use that, study it, um, use it as a uh, marker in your Bible, whatever you want to use that for. And we'll be going back and referring to that from time to time in this study. So uh, don't throw it away. Uh, keep it so I don't have to hand out any more of those. So that brings us to the first two feasts. The first two feasts we're going to look at. The Feast of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. These two feasts are included together because they happen at the same time. They're, and they're interrelated. And uh, we see the interrelation of these two feasts in the Bible where at times only one of these things is mentioned. So it will mention the Passover or it will mention Unleavened Bread. And the thing to remember is whenever it mentions one, it's always referring to the other as well. So when it mentions Passover, just assume that included there is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. If it mentions the Feast of Unleavened Bread, assume that also involved in that is the Passover. Both are in view. Um, the Passover, I've already mentioned there's three great feasts in the, hist in, in the calendar of Israel. Okay, I already mentioned that tonight. Do you remember what I said they were? Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles. Okay, the most important of those three is Passover. 
Passover is the most important. So here to lay out what we're going to do for looking at these feasts, we're going to look at what I've called the scripture. You can see it there in your notes where we're going to look at the term, the actual uh, term as it occurs in the Bible, the meaning of it, um, of both Passover, then unleavened bread, and then we're going to look at the Passover celebration itself, and then the celebration of unleavened bread itself, and then have some concluding remarks. So the first thing we're going to look at in relation to the scriptures, coming from the scriptures, is the term Passover. And we're going to look at that term both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So in the Old Testament, the term for Passover is Pesach. Pesach. It comes from the word Pascha. Or let me say that again. Pasach. It comes from the word Pasach. It doesn't sound a whole lot different, does it? Um, it's just the, the vowels are a little bit different. This word means to cross over or to spring over or, or even cross by. Something like that. To, to um, cross over, spring over. And so that's why you get pass over. To pass over. In the New Testament, the word for pass over is pasca. Pascha. And the thing to just realize about that Greek word, Pascha, is that it's not a Greek word. It's a Hebrew word that's been transliterated into Greek. Okay, and there in your notes, I've given you a, a little, I don't know what you call it, a diagram where you see it says Hebrew and below it it says Greek. And I've put the letters in there. And those letters that are in bold, so you see those letters, the P, the S, and the CH, those are the key letters. So here's your Hebrew lesson for this evening. All Hebrew words, all Hebrew words are made up of three letters. All Hebrew words. Those three letters are always consonants, not vowels. They're never vowels. They're always consonants. And so every Hebrew word has a three-letter root that is made up of consonants. And that's the P-S and what I've come over there is the C-H uh, sound. So, that's, so remember that. And so when you look at Pascha in Greek and you see uh, Pasach in Hebrew, you see how the P lines up, the S lines up, and the C-H lines up. The Greek word is actually a Hebrew word that's just transliterated. So that's important to remember. So there's no Greek word that is used here for, uh, with a specific meaning. So now when we, when we look at the word Passover in our English Bibles, uh, when we look at it, we see that it occurs some 78 times. Okay, about 70, some Bibles at 77, some Bibles at 79, but 78 is in between, you know, and, and so we're going with 78. Um, so it occurs 78 times. You can see, it. I think I give you a table there that breaks it down. 49 times in the Old Testament, 29 times in the New Testament, and uh, you can look all those passages up if you want to. 
Now, the, the thing I want you to understand here is that this uh, list of passages does not include every time the Passover festival is referred to. Doesn't include every single time because there are times in the Bible where Passover is referred to with just the term the feast or the festival. And because of the time of year and the context in which that word, the feast or festival appears, we know it's Passover. It can't be anything other than Passover. It just doesn't use the word Passover. Okay, so there's several places in the Bible where we have that occur. But when we think about the word Passover itself, we see these are all the occurrences in your Bible of the word Passover. So it's, it's an interesting thing to go through every single one and see how it's used. Um, what I did in my Bible is every time it occurs, I marked it in my Bible. And uh, so that's an interesting little exercise for you to do. And uh, you probably learn more by doing that and reading all these passages than you will tonight. But uh, uh, I would encourage you to do something like that. Now, there's nine places, nine places that are of special interest to us that use the word Passover. And we're not going to look at these. I just want you to um, be aware of them. And I and I think I put those in your notes. Didn't I put those in your notes? Places of significance. Yeah, they're in there. I think. Yeah, they're there in your notes. So um, you have Exodus 12. Exodus 12, why is it significant? Anybody know why Exodus 12 is significant for the Passover? Yeah, that's where it's instituted. That's where the initial Passover is given. That's why it's important. Deuteronomy chapter 16. This is where the Passover is repeated. The instructions for the Passover is repeated for the children of Israel that will enter into the promised land. Uh, Joshua 5 is the first Passover that is celebrated in the promised land. So that's significant. That's significant. It's the first Passover celebrated in the promised land. Second Chronicles 30 and 35, if you were here for the kings of the divided kingdom, tell me why Second Chronicles chapter 30 and 35 are significant for the Passover. <laughs> Think Hezekiah and Josiah. What did both of those kings do in Judah? They had reforms, spiritual reforms, and part of what they did was reinstituted Passover. And that tells us there were times in the history of Israel that they did not celebrate Passover. Okay, so that's why that's important. Ezra chapter 6 is important because this is the record of the Passover being celebrated when the children of Israel return from the Babylonian captivity. And so they are kicked out of the land, and when they come back into the land, they celebrate Passover. Ezekiel 45 is important because that passage tells us the Passover will be celebrated in the millennium. So think about that. We actually will think about that a little bit more at the end. 
how, how can the Passover be celebrated in the millennium? And then you'll see the Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22 passages that are listed there. Those are all related to the Lord's Supper. So those are the Lord's Supper passages. The Lord's Supper was not a thimble of grape juice and a wafer of, I, I don't know what that stuff is. <laughs> Super absorbent material, whatever it is, because it sucks all the moisture out of your mouth. But that's not what communion, that's not what the Lord's Supper was. The Lord's Supper was what? Passover. It was the Passover meal. And, and, and there's certain parts of it that become significant in those passages. Also in John's gospel, John's gospel, John uses the Passover as a marker for the chronology of the life of Jesus. So chapter two, chapter six, and chapter 13 all mention the Passover. And these are three different Passovers that John mentions as a way to give time indications for the ministry of Jesus Christ in his gospel. Then finally, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says uh, that Christ is our Passover. He is the sacrifice, in fact. And, and we'll take a little bit closer look at that later. So that's the word Passover and where it appears in the Bible on some of these significant places. Now if we consider the phrase unleavened bread, unleavened bread. In the Old Testament, this is the phrase, eth chag hamatzoth, eth chag hamatzoth, which is literally the feast of the unleavened bread, the feast of the unleavened bread. The, the word bread is matzah or matzoth. And that comes from the verb that means to drain or to squeeze out. So it's the idea of getting leaven out of the bread. No leaven in the bread. So uh, we, that's this word matzah or matzoth. Now, in, in Hebrew, there are at least three words for bread. I don't know if you realize that or not. I didn't realize that until... I thought there was a couple, but I didn't, I didn't really realize what they were. So the first word is lachim, lachim. So Beth lachim, right? House of bread. So that's the first word for bread. And it really doesn't mean bread. It means grain. And it's grain used for making bread or grain for feeding animals. But uh, because it's used for making bread, sometimes it just appears as bread, bread. Uh, the next word is hamates. Hamates is the next word for uh, bread. And this is the word for leaven. Okay, but it's used for bread. Uh, then there's our word that we're interested in, matzah. When matzah appears in the Bible, it's always unleavened bread. Always, always unleavened bread. Lachaim can mean unleavened bread if it's qualified in the context. For instance, don't turn there, but just listen to it. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 3, it says, 
you shall not eat it with leaven. Seven days you shall eat of it unleavened bread, unleavened matzoth bread lachem. So there, lachem is speaking of unleavened bread, bread without leaven. Okay, but it's qualified. You know it from the context. So that's in the Old Testament, the feast of unleavened bread. In the New Testament, they just use a shorthand expression in the New Testament. It doesn't, uh, matter of fact, in the New Testament, there's only one place where it says the feast of unleavened bread. Luke chapter 22, verse 1 says the feast of unleavened bread. Everywhere else, it just says the unleavened, the unleavened. And that is shorthand for the feast of unleavened bread. So when you look at the phrase unleavened bread, what you find is that it occurs 28 times in the Bible, 21 times in the Old Testament, seven times in the New Testament. So quite a bit less than Passover. But remember, everywhere you see Passover, you need to be thinking Feast of Unleavened Bread, and everywhere you see Feast of Unleavened Bread, you need to be thinking Passover. Now, there are places in the Bible that mentions unleavened bread that's not connected to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Okay, but it, it's clear because it talks about the priest eating unleavened bread and, and things like that. But where you see the phrase, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it's always talking about the Passover as well. Um, Real quick, turn to Luke chapter 22, verse 1. I want you to see this. Because I think this is a very clear passage that shows us this connection between Passover and unleavened bread. Luke chapter 22, verse 1. It says, Now... The Feast of Unleavened Bread. So that's the only place in the New Testament where the whole name of the feast occurs, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called Passover, which is called Passover. Uh, so that shows us the connection between these two. Now there's other passages that also show us this connection. And I, I do give you those passages, I, I think, correct? Passages that show the connection between Passover and unleavened bread. So I'm not sure if I did I mark out which ones are the most important there. Okay, let me let me give you. There's seven of them. I think that would be helpful for you all to look at. The first one is in uh, Exodus 12. Exodus 12, verses 11 and verse 15. So Exodus 12, verses 11 and verse 15. The second one is in Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23, verses 5 and 6. Verses 5 and 6 there. So just make a little mark by that number. Then Numbers 28, 16 and 17, make a little mark there. Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. Deuteronomy 16, 1 through 3. And then go all the way to number 14 there on your list. Luke 22, we just read that one. Luke 22, 1. 
and then Acts 12, 3 through 4, Acts 12, 3 through 4, and finally, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 and 8. So uh, mark all those down. You, you find those. Uh, I'll just say in, in the 1 Corinthians 5 passage, it, it's using Passover and unleavened in a very symbolic way, but it has the actual events in view. Okay? It, so even when a word is used symbolically, it always has the actual event, the actual thing in view. That's the only way it makes sense. So let's look more particularly at Passover. So this is back in Exodus 12. So turning your Bible to Exodus 12. If you followed instructions, you already had that marked. Hopefully everybody demonstrated they're a good instruction follower. Exodus chapter 12. And this is the institution of the premier or the first Passover. You know, when they talk about, you know, this is the premiere of the show or something like that. It's the first episode. So this is, that's why I chose uh, premiere here. And to understand what's happening here, we got to understand a little bit about the context. So let me back up in the book of Exodus. And I, we're not going to look at the passages. I'm just going to narrate what's going on here. Moses is in the wilderness tending the sheep of his father-in-law on Mount Horeb. What's another name for Mount Horeb? Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. So... He's uh, being a shepherd there on Mount Horeb. And the Lord appears to Moses in a burning bush. And the Lord has seen the oppression that the Egyptians have been putting on the Jews in Egypt and is now going to deliver them from the Egyptians and bring them to the promised land. And he's going to use Moses to do it. And so it's in this context that, the, that God gives Moses and the Jewish people his personal name, Yahweh, uh, Lord, all capital letters. I am the self-existing one. That's, that's who God is. God's a title. Lord is his name and he gives his name to Moses and the Jews here. And the Lord tells Moses that he knows Pharaoh will not let the Jews go even if great difficulty is brought on him. He knows Pharaoh won't let them go. And the Lord is going to work in such a way so that the Egyptians will essentially pay the Jews to go. So he's going to do something miraculous that they will be sent out with riches. And so Moses and Aaron, his brother, go to Pharaoh and they start explaining this to him. Let my people go and, and uh, you, you know the movie. And at this time, the oppression of the Jews increases. The Egyptians oppress them uh, even more. And then we have 
these signs, or we might call them plagues, that the Lord brings upon the Egyptians. And there are ten plagues. And what we're interested in is the tenth plague, which is the death of the firstborn. And so God says, I am going to kill all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. This is where Exodus chapter 12 comes in. And so notice in Exodus chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2 that the first thing that the Lord does is he deals with the timing. He deals with the significance of the time. And uh, so it says here in verse 2, it says, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. So this is the month Aviv or Abib, also called Nisan or Nisan, Nisan, something like that, N-I-S-A-N. Now this month, along with several other months in the Hebrew calendar, has two names. The first name, Aviv, is, is the name of a, of a Canaanite month. This is the name of their month. And the Jews just used that, and later they changed it to a Hebrew name, Nisan. Okay, so that's, there's nothing mystical or mysterious about having two names, that's what it is. One comes from the Canaanite world, and one is, is the Hebrew name. And uh, God tells Moses that this is going to be the first month of your calendar year. This is the beginning of the month, the first month of your calendar year. This also indicates this is the month on which the nation of Israel was born. Up to this time, they are a people. They're not a nation. Now they're going to be a nation. Okay, they're going to be their own independent political entity. So that's in verses 1 and 2. In verses 3 through 5, we see the instructions for choosing a lamb. Verse 3, speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if a household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of persons, according to each man's need. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. So uh, the lamb is supposed to be chosen, chosen. It's supposed to be chosen, chosen on the 10th of the month. So Aviv or Nisan 10 is when the lamb is chosen. It's the responsibility of the head of the household to choose the lamb. And if your house, if your household is not big enough, you can share a lamb with your neighbor. It's all based on how much food your kids eat. Okay, that's, that's the paraphrase of the end of verse four. How much food do your kids eat? That's how you determine if, you, if one lamb uh, is too much for your house. And, <clears throat> excuse me, and then in verse five, it gives us the requirements for the lamb. It says, without blemish. This is the word that means whole, complete, or without deficiency. So there's another word in Hebrew that has a, a similar idea of being whole or complete. Does anybody want to take a guess what that word is? Shalom. 
Shalom. But this word has the idea of no deficiency. No deficiency. It's used of for the entirety of something. When you want to refer to the whole thing, you use this word. Uh, when you want to refer to the quality of an action being a complete thing, this is the word you use. If you want to mention the quality of a thing, this is the word you use. This word is the word that is used throughout Leviticus when it talks about a unblemished or a perfect sacrifice. This is the word that is used. It's also used of an ethical or moral quality of integrity. But here it's speaking of the physical quality of this animal. So this is a lamb that's got all of its parts as it should, and all those parts work as they should. This is not a requirement to have a absolutely best of the best lamb. So if you were ever in 4-H or FFA or anything like that, every year they would have competitions and you would bring your animal in and they would have judging, right? They would judge those animals. And it mattered how your animal was proportioned. It mattered what they looked like when they stood. It mattered what they looked like when you led them around with a halter at least for the bigger animals. You don't lead chickens around by halters. Um, but if you stopped an animal and it stood, how did its, how did its hooves appear when it stood? Were they crooked? Were they pigeon-toed? Did they stick out like a duck? How, how, all that was gauged. That would be a perfect animal if it matched all the criteria. That's not what it's talking about here. This is talking about a perfectly fine animal. An animal that's just a normal animal without any deficiencies. It's got all of its parts and all of its parts work. So I want you to understand here, this requirement for this lamb, for the Passover, is not an extraordinary requirement that would be hard to do. It's a very ordinary requirement that everybody could do. So God is not requiring something extraordinary here when he says, Choose a lamb without blemish. It does tell us there's a standard, though, and a standard has to be met. So unblemished, without blemish, it also has to be a male. It has to be a male lamb. It can be no older than 12 months. Literally, this phrase is son of the first year, son of the first year. So it's got to be no older than 12 months. Some, some try to say it has to be 12 months old but not 13 months old. Other, other people later on in Jewish history, they'll say it can be no younger than eight days old and no older than 12 months old. So it's gotta fit into there. But here it just says, son of the first year. That's all it says. And it can be a sheep or a goat, a sheep or a goat. So two, two different kinds of animals that would have lambs. So that's the choosing of the lamb. When you come to verse six, we have the killing of the lamb, the killing of the lamb. It says, now you shall keep it, that's the lamb, until the 14th day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. So when does the killing take place? It takes place on the 14th day of the month. They've been keeping the lamb for four days it gets killed on the 14th at twilight. Well, when is twilight? 
Okay? That's not how they interpreted that. No. So it's been interpreted as the time when the sun starts to go down and the time when the sun is completely down. That's twilight. Any, any time in there. Uh, later on, they got more specific and they said between 3 and 6. Between 3 and 6. Have you ever thought about, this has got nothing to do with this particular context, but have you ever thought about how did they know it was 3 o'clock and 6 o'clock? I mean, they did not have this Casio watch that tells me we have 15 minutes left. They didn't have that. <laughs> well, they must have had something because they could reckon time within the half an hour, which is pretty impressive, I think. And I don't know how they did that, but they had something that they could tell that with because they, they could tell. Anyway, that had nothing to do with the Passover at all. So let's, let's move on ahead. So the lamb is killed, we'll just, we're going to say in the evening. The lamb, is the lamb is killed in the evening. And then what do they do in verse 7? They are to take a uh, bunch of hyssop, hyssop plant, bind it together to make a little brush. And when they kill that lamb, they collect the blood, then they take that blood and they paint it on the door frame, on the doorposts and on... Uh, the lentil. And then in verse 8, they're going to roast the lamb. They have to roast it. Cannot boil it. They have to roast the lamb. Maybe this is why churches have barbecues. They roast the lamb and then they eat it. And then they eat it. And uh, so they, they uh, you, you can read the description there of what they're doing. Now, the original purpose, the original purpose for this is found in verses 12 and 13. Uh, especially, just look at the end of verse 13. Exodus 12, at the end, verse 13. It says, and when I, this is the Lord speaking, and when I see the blood, the blood from the lamb that's been put on the doorpost, on the doorframe, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of the Egyptians. So the original purpose of the Passover lamb was to supply the blood to mark the door where the children of Israel were at so that the Lord would pass over them and not kill the firstborn in the house. Now, the subsequent purpose, that was the original purpose. The subsequent purpose is found in verse 14. So this would be every time you celebrate Passover after the first one, this is why you celebrate it. Verse 14. So this day shall be to you a memorial. Memorial, a remembrance. So you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting covenant. So this is why they would keep the feast year after year. Why would they do it? So they remember the Passover. The original Passover, why did they do this? So that the Lord would spare the firstborn. So they're remembering that every year when they celebrate Passover. So 
Again, here's the procedure. Tenth of the month, they choose the lamb. Fourteenth of the month, they kill, cook, and eat the lamb. When they do that, they paint their door frame with the blood of the lamb. The whole lamb must be eaten. If there's any leftovers, you burn them. You cannot take any meat from the lamb outside the house. It has to be totally consumed. Whether you eat it or you burn it, it has to be totally consumed in the house. And you have to eat it ready to travel. We see that in verse 11. You got to be ready to go. You got to have your belt on, your shoes on, your traveling clothes on. You got to be ready to move. Now, when we look at the Old Testament after this initial occurrence, we don't see the Passover celebration everywhere. We're going to see the second Passover mentioned in Numbers. We see the Passover mentioned when they enter the Promised Land. But between the promised land and the Babylonian exile, we only see three mentions of the Passover celebration. Solomon celebrated the Passover, Hezekiah celebrated the Passover, and Josiah celebrated the Passover. So as you read the Old Testament, there were certain times when the Jews just did not celebrate Passover. I personally think those were the exceptions and not the rule. I think the, the standard practice was that they would celebrate Passover. By the time you get to the New Testament, it is a rigid, rigid practice. You celebrated Passover every year. I think that's pretty typical even of the Old Testament. Now, as we get to the New Testament, the procedure for Passover has developed. And things have been added to it. So Nisan 10, on the day that they would choose a lamb, it, was, it became known as the Great Sabbath. The Great Sabbath. And on that day, they would read Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Okay, so when Jesus celebrated the Passover on Nisan 10, when they chose a lamb they would have read Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. In this passage, it talks about how the Lord will refine and purify the priests and the things associated with the temple. If you think about John's gospel in chapter 2, when John mentions the first Passover, what does Jesus do? Goes into the temple and drives out the people selling things and the money changers. Now, what's he doing? He is purifying the temple. These people should not be here doing this thing. Interesting connection. On Nisan 13, so we're, we're talking about in the, the days of Jesus. On Nisan 13, this is when the day of preparation began. The day of preparation. So in John chapter 19, verse 14, it mentions the preparation day. It mentions the activities of the high priest on the preparation day in that passage. This would have been the day where they would have gone throughout their homes and gotten rid of all the leaven. All the leaven would be taken out. 
on Nisan 14 up until the evening. It's still the preparation day. So it's not Passover till the evening. Then at evening time, it becomes Passover. You remember how the, the Jews reckon their days from evening to evening, not morning to morning. So that's why it's still preparation day. Um, Nisan 14 is also called the first day of Passover. So every Israelite male is to, in Jesus' day, if you were not in a state of uncleanness, ceremonial uncleanness, and you lived within 15 miles of Jerusalem, you were expected to be at Jerusalem for, to, to offer sacrifice, to present your offerings. This is in Jesus' day. Um, every day, remember in Israel, every day there would be daily offerings given. There's a morning offering and there's an evening offering. Um, on Nisan 14, the preparation day, the evening sacrifice was killed and offered an hour earlier than normal. And so they're preparing. And then the Passover meal. Here's how the Passover meal goes. They would pray. They would have their first cup of wine. Then they wash their hands. Then they pray again. Then the table with the roasted lamb is brought in. Uh, I'm summarizing a lot of this. They would take bitter herbs and they would dip it in their sauce and they would eat their bitter herbs. Then they would fill the second cup of wine. They wouldn't drink it, but they would fill it up. And then the son of the family, the oldest son usually, would ask the father, why are we doing this? And the father would explain to him the history of Israel from Terah, the father of Abraham, all the way through the giving of the law. So he explains this to him, and he would explain what's the lamb? What's the bitter herbs? What's the unleavened bread? What do all these things mean? After they do that, they will sing Psalm 113 and 114, Hillel Psalms. They would sing those together. Then they drink their second cup of wine, wash their hands again, have another prayer, and then take a cake of unleavened bread and break it in two and give thanks. They would take part of that bread and they make themselves a bitter herb sandwich. I don't know how else to explain it. You put the bitter, you make a sandwich out of it, dip it in the sauce, eat it. And then the main course is served. And so they would eat the main course. Now, when the temple was still standing, the last food that could be eaten is the meat of the lamb. They wouldn't eat anything else. They would just have the meat of the lamb. After AD 70, we have a problem. What's the problem after AD 70? No temple. With no temple, there's no what? Sacrifice. No, there's no sacrifice. So, as a part of the development of Passover, they would have the uh, afikumen, okay, which is the after dish which became the second half of that unleavened bread. Okay, the second half of it, that's their dessert, okay, if I can put it that way. They would eat that, uh, they wash their hands, and then they have the third and fourth cups of wine, and then they sing Psalm 115 through 118, another group of Hillel Psalms. They would sing these. So in the Gospels, when, it, when the last Passover is celebrated by the Lord, how does it end? 
They sang a hymn together. Now, what's that talking about? Psalm 115 through 18. That's what they were singing together. So they were singing psalms together. Now, modern-day Seder practices are, are developments off of the original, what they did in Exodus. But they've, a lot of these things have been developed. So as Christians, when, if we ever participate in a Seder or something like that, we need to not read too much into it. Because some of these things were developed things. They're not, they don't have a biblical foundation. So we just, word of caution. So the prophetic significance here, the prophetic significance here. In John chapter 1, verses 29 through 36. Why don't you just turn there. John chapter 1, verse 29 and 36. John chapter 1, verse 29 and verse 36. So this is before Christ's earthly ministry starts. And so John sees, this is John the Baptist, sees Jesus coming. And what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Actually, I think he's quoting almost exactly from Isaiah 53, 12, I think. It's very similar, very similar. Um, he takes, it's not just takes away, it's, it is the idea that he takes up upon himself the sins of the world. Now, in verse 36, what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God. Significant. That's significant. So this is talking about, what we've been talking about with Passover is that the most important feast of the year is Passover. And here's the Lamb. The perfect, unblemished lamb. And here, John says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Also, uh, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The issue that Paul is dealing with is sin in the church. It is sin that is not being dealt with by the church. It is sin that in fact seems to be celebrated in the church. So here's a man who's involved in an adulterous relationship. And so Paul is addressing that. And he's saying, I've already judged this guy and I'm not even there. So he says, when you all get together, this is verse 4, when you all get, to get, get together, verse 5, deliver such a one of this, as this to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Verse 6, your glorying is not good. And I think he's talking about their glorying and what they perceive as their Christian liberty is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So he's using the imagery of leaven and sin here. Verse 7. Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you, are tru since you truly are 
unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So you see where Paul is getting his instructions here, and he's, he's basically telling the church in Corinth, you need to deal with the sin that's in the church. You need to deal with the sin, and just like they would get the leaven out in the Passover meal, you need to get the sin out of your church because Christ is our Passover. He's the one who has died for our sins, and that should change how we behave. And so we, we see that even the Passover, now Moses might not have ever thought about it, right? Um, Isaiah might not have ever thought about the Passover in this way. But Paul understands what the prophetic significance is because the Passover is fulfilled in the death of Christ and that has an effect on the believers in the time of Paul and even today. So that's all we got time for this evening. So next week uh, when we gather again, we're going to pick right back up at the Feast of unleavened bread and that won't take too long to, to cover that um, a lot less time and then we'll uh, work on the first fruits and maybe Pentecost I've given myself uh, up to eight weeks to do this so we'll, we'll see how fast we'll see how fast it goes okay but the idea is at least one one feast a week one feast a week Okay, so let me have a word of prayer and we'll be done. But of course, if there's any questions or comments, um, we're free to do that after prayer. Father, we give you thanks for your goodness to us. Thank you for this time that we've had together looking at your word, looking especially at the, the Passover feast and um, what you did in the first Passover in passing over all the houses of the Israelites who had applied the blood to the doorframe and had spared the death of the firstborn in those houses. And Lord, how we see that that is to be celebrated throughout the history of the Jews and that we even look back on it as Christians today and we look back on it through the Lord's Supper and we look back on it through what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 that Jesus is our Passover. He's the Passover sacrifice for us so that you will pass over our sins and not hold us accountable as long as we are in Christ. And so we give you thanks for that. Uh, Lord, be with us as we go. Give us safety as we return to our homes. And Lord, we ask for your blessing on us as we uh, live lives that are pleasing to you. In Christ's name, amen.